Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. And before we begin today, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer again and ask God's blessings upon the preaching of his word. And as we do, we want to continue to remember the Fout family and uh, Beverly Fout specifically and, and, and Jack Fout's passing. And the funeral service was yesterday. And we had a wonderful time being able to remember Jack and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life, knowing his confession of faith and the promises of the gospel. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will uh, open God's word and uh, walk through this passage. Father, we bow our head before you, and we thank you that you rule and reign over all things. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope, who is our peace, who is our righteousness. And we pray not only for the Fout family, but for others that are here today who may be suffering or grieving or in the midst of affliction and adversity, and that you will remind their souls of the wonderful hope that we have in Jesus. As we now come to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would pour out the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will illuminate our hearts and minds, and that that you will convict us of our sin and that you will bring into our view the wonderful work of Christ who has saved us and that he will continue his work of transformation in our lives all the way down to every relationship that we have in our homes, uh, whether it be in our marriages, uh, our parenting, um, whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that you will do your work in our hearts through the power of your word. And uh, we love you and thank you for your faithfulness. I pray for that you would also, we confess our sinfulness and uh, we confess as well um, our constant need for Christ. And uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 21 is where we're going to go this morning. And the title of the message is The Gospel-Shaped Family. The gospel-shaped family, as we continue our study in the book of Colossians, the sufficiency of Christ and, of course, his supremacy. And I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we read God's word together. And we're going to pick right back up in verse 18, and we're going to read down through verse 21. The word of God says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning as we come to this particular text, this passage, beginning in verse 18, we know that Paul is been, has been explaining what our new life in Christ looks like. He has been explaining to this church through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit oh, how the gospel transforms us. And he has detailed that going all the way into the, in, the inside, inside of our hearts and our relationship to indwelling sin, to our relationships with one another. And now he turns to the family, and in some sense, he brings the gospel all the way home. 
And for us to think about how the gospel relates to the home, to family, to marriage, uh, we need to say a few things that, that Paul clearly, by implication, is affirming. First, we want to establish in this introduction, as the gospel bring, is brought home, that God created marriage and the family. So the very fact that Paul brings up marriage relationships and the, the interdynamic, the dynamics of the home is simply an indicator that he's not just speaking to household rules of that time, but he is upholding the truth that God has created marriage in the family. It, marriage and the family is part of the social order of the created world. That's important because some today would say, no, it's just a social construct, right? That it's just an invention of humanity and we can do with, we can do with marriage, we can do with gender, we can do with these things, anything that we want to, but that's just not true. Uh, and if we go back to Genesis chapter one and two, you will see that in creation there is order, there is a there is order in creation there's gender in creation there are roles that are given to male and female so that the man and the woman husband and wife can have dominion over all the things that God has created Genesis 1:26 God said let us make man in our image notice the order man was created first and then he says after our likeness and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So I, I just read that so you under, we can see that there really is order there. And that order is man was created first, then the woman, and in creating man and woman, there is distinct difference between a man and a woman, and while they are created equally, they are designed differently so that they can execute their distinct roles in the family and in the larger realm of creation. Gender is determined by God, and the roles of men and women in marriage are defined by God. And it's very clear that Paul upholds that, and therefore we should too. And however, what we also want to recognize is that while that is the order, guess what? Genesis 3 comes into play. And that order and the relationship between the man and the woman was shattered by the serpent's entrance into the garden and our first parents' sin. And the effects of sin, the rebellion of man against God, the effects of that has extended all the way through the relationship between man and the woman and the family, and you even see it in Genesis 3.16, where the Lord God says to the woman, He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And those words indicate what God is saying is, there will now be conflict that will arise from your inner corruption that will disrupt your relationship. 
And so with that in mind, what we, we need to recognize this morning is that every marriage from Genesis 3.16 forward, all sorts of evil acts have been committed against the other, and every marriage is impacted, and every home is impacted by sin and is dysfunctional because all of us are corrupt and we need redemption. But there's hope. A hope of salvation that was given even to Adam and Eve in the garden through a Savior who would come and crush the serpent's head. And that Savior is Jesus. And through His death and resurrection, men and women can be made right with God, can be made new within, and can be restored not only to God, but to one another. And that's where Paul writes that's what what paul is is demonstrating here in colossians 3 verse 17 he is showing this church with all that background that we needed to set up how christ and the gospel changes everything the as, as lord what paul has showed us in verses 1 all the way up to verse 17 is that christ as lord transforms your identity your lifestyle and our relationships, and that the Lordship of Christ extends to every dimension of our existence. This was brought up last week. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See how Paul is demonstrating the expansive Lordship of Christ? In fact, picking up in verse 18, if you read all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, you will see the word Lord in reference to Jesus mentioned six times. Six times. It is clear that Paul wants this church to understand what it means that Jesus is Lord. And what, what is also clear is that the Lord of the entire universe, who is sufficient for our salvation is to be the ruling center of Christian marriage and family. Paul brings the gospel into the home and sets it in the middle of the dining room table to show these new believers how Christ transforms the first and most important institution on earth, the family. And now, here's what we need to keep in mind. He does this not because they have it all together. (laughs) Because Christians do not have it all together. What we have is Christ. And the hope that we have, because we have Christ, is that He is fixing our broken homes, fixing our messy marriages, and if we're all honest in here, sometimes he's just holding us together as we learn more deeply what it means to be saved and have the gospel. Jesus is restoring the broken patterns that were shattered by sin. And he's doing that in each and every family. So listen, it doesn't matter how messy you might feel your marriage is. It may not, it doesn't matter how dysfunctional you may feel your home is. Here it is the reality. All of our marriages are messy. All of our homes are in some sense dysfunctional. And again, let's be reminded, that's why we need Jesus. Just ask my own kids, my own family. Sometimes I'll, I'll pick up our cat and I'll say, the only thing that makes sense, Gus, is Jesus and you. 
Sorry, I had to say that, but that's just the reality. So here's the key truth that is being driven home here in this passage. The gospel transforms and shapes the family, especially in how we relate to one another. The gospel transforms and shapes the family, specifically in how we relate to one another. So you can't understand these commands until you first get the gospel right in the center. And there are four ways, four things that must happen in our lives that demonstrate how the gospel transforms and shapes the family. Wives must submit willingly to their husbands. Husbands must love their wives. Husbands must love their wives selflessly. Children must obey their, their parents respectfully. And then fourthly, parents must discipline their children carefully. The gospel produces all of those things, even in our brokenness. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing is, wives must submit willingly. So the passage says, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So we need to define submission. And I've used that exact word. I have not shunned away from the word for, from submission of submission because it is biblical. It is the word of God. And the word submit means to willingly or voluntarily subject or place oneself under the authority or direction of someone or something else. There's plenty of examples that we have in the Bible and in life where that takes place. We know that as an employee, you submit to, we submit to our employer or our company. A church member submits to pastors and elders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and shepherd the flock. Citizens, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. Citizens are to submit to the governing authorities. Students submit to their teachers. And, and athletes submit to their coaches. I mean, in, in each case, what is re- there is a, there is, there is a recognition of established authority and the individual subjects himself or herself to that authority. And here what Paul says is that in marriage, the wife submits to the husband. And the text is clear. To your husband. Wives submit to your husbands. Not to all men, not to all other husbands, but to your husband. And if you're single and you're not married, you submit to Christ. So by doing so, what happens when a wife submits to her husband, she recognizes his headship. She demonstrates a respect to the responsibility that God has given her husband in the order of creation. She places herself willingly under his God-given authority. And I want to be clear, that headship that, re- that is given to the husband is a responsibility. It is not a right, it is not a privilege, it is a responsibility, and verse 19 shows you that. She places herself willingly under that authority and then she assumes the role, her role to affirm his leadership and help him to fulfill that responsibility as his help me. 
created first, he has the responsibility. Creates it, created second, she shares in that responsibility as his equal, but also as his helpmeet. And as a result, there will be harmony in the marriage. Now, I realize that our culture recoils at this truth, denouncing it as archaic, patriarchal, and oppressive. However, modern sensibilities do not supersede divine revelation and God's order for marriage and the home. Furthermore, one of the clear consequences of the fall that I alluded to in the beginning is the tendency for a woman to, or a, the wife to dominate or rule her, her husband, to exert her own authority and control him, to, use the adage, rule the roost, to override and to overpower. Now, we'll get to men in just a second. But as this applies to the wife, such impulses must be put aside. And a wife must exhibit an attitude and disposition that will honor her husband and enable him to lead the way God has called him to lead. And this happens over time. Remember what I said. It doesn't happen immediate. You don't buy a home, move into it, and everything's fixed. You buy a home, you move into it, and it's a process. And so when the Lord occupies the heart of a believer, he begins this process. And so this is this submission happens over time as you grow in the Lord, pursue godliness, and obey the Holy Spirit. Let me speak personally to this. This coming September, Christy and I will have been married 25 years. And over those years, she has embraced this command of submission, certainly not without struggle. But it has been a joy in my own heart to watch the Word of God transform her and me as this has played out in our marriage. And there have been some really difficult moments. I don't want to give the perception to anyone that we have this mastered or figured out. We have been a work of God's grace. And what I will say is there are some general things that I have seen that, that I can speak to as she has embraced in, in submission. So I, I'm just going to give these to you and I'll tell you that if you go to Titus chapter two, you'll see these things right there in Paul's instructions to the older women as they mentor the younger women's, women. Our home has been her highest priority. Our other, all other pursuits and interests became secondary when we got married and in some cases sacrificially abandoned. Now, this has played out over 25 years. Caring for and teaching our children has been her greatest responsibility, and she has embraced that. I have never seen her cringe at saying, I am a stay-at-home mom. And I have never wanted to ever cause her to cringe in being a stay-at-home mom. Her influence on our children has been absolutely indelible for their own upbringing and care. And I would also say that she has given herself joyfully to our marriage relationship, sharing herself emotionally, mentally, and physically. And that has been wonderful in our marriage. But lastly, I will say she has respected me, my role in the home and my calling in the ministry. And she has followed even when I have been simply wrong and often foolish. 
This has only benefited our marriage and blessed our ministry in the local church. And so I say all that in order to demonstrate simply, personally, practically, that God's pattern in order works. And the gospel over time, when it takes root in our lives, it does transform us. Titus, again, I'll just read that to you. Titus says they are to teach, he says, what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, that's the pattern that should begin in the wife relationship to the husband. But again, all of this must be gospel-driven. Notice what the text says. It says, wives, submit yourself to the husband as is fitting in the Lord. We can't lose that. That phrase is critical, lifting the command beyond practical living. This is how the Lord has ordered the family, the marriage. And, and, and the husband is the head for, and here's what, here's what we have to see. It's the Lord's design. It's the way he's ordered it. And as a result, and the gospel, as the gospel shapes us, he orders the home and establishes our roles for his good and our, for our good and his glory. Here, Ephesians 5, look at the text here. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Paul wrote Ephesians in prison as well, and it parallels with Colossians. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So notice what Paul says. Christ is the head of the church, and God the Father is the head of Christ. Thus, submission is how the Son relates to the Father in the Trinity as he carry out, carries out the Father's will. But even greater, submission reflects Christ's marriage to the church. We have come under his lordship and of, under Christ's servant leadership. And therefore, submission in the home is a beautiful display of Christ's lordship in the church. And so that's where Paul roots this. Now, before we leave this point, there's something that we do need to say. We need to be clear in what submission is not. It does not mean becoming a doormat or subjecting to abuse or violence. Never is abuse or violence acceptable, and never should anyone be subjected to it. Verse 18, again, is, is paired with verse 19. It does not mean, submission does not mean mindless servitude, doing whatever a husband demands. It does not mean a wife forfeits her opinion, her voice, and cannot even disagree with her husband. Most importantly, submission never involves disregarding one's own conscience and the authority of the word of God. Submission is to be fitting to the Lord, not only in, 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 in relationship to the divine order he has established, but it should be fitting into what he would wish and desire. And so, in other words, you should submit in ways that honor the Lord and help your husband. Submission demonstrates the importance of your role, doesn't diminish it without which no husband could fulfill his responsibility without his help me. And if you're single here, 
if you're a young lady who is single, how do you demonstrate this now in your own home towards your earthly father and then further towards Christ? So here's the truth applied. Women should cultivate gospel-driven submission in the home. And so as you think about all of this that I've said, what will that mean in your home and in your marriage? What does that mean for your attitude, for your disposition, for your perspective? How can God's word, should God's word shape that? So that is the first way that the gospel transforms relationships in the home. Wives submit to the husband willfully, voluntarily. But then the second thing we see is husbands must love selflessly. Look at verse 19. The text says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So we see a positive command and we see a negative. The positive command to the husband roots everything in Christ-centered love. Now here's what's interesting. There was no other code in the ancient world for households that required husbands to love their wives. In fact, women, children, servants or slaves had no rights. I mean, it truly was a society where men were permitted to do whatever they wished. Do you see how the gospel transforms that? Not only are we established as equally created in the image of God, but there is a, there is an equivalent, there is an equivalent responsibility that the husband has to the wife that actually enables the wife to submit. And so we see the radical nature of the gospel. Leveling, leveling the ground between the man and the woman like it was in creation. We're going back to before the fall. And additionally, what I want you to see is, is that the Greek word used for love is agapao, which is self-sacrificing, self-giving love. It's not eros or erotic love or phileo referring to brotherly love, brotherly kindness. Paul is anchoring his, this concept of love in God's love for his people. Look at verse 12. But put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved or loved by God. And so we see that in Paul's mind, it is this divine love that should characterize the husband's love for his wife. Now, Ephesians 5 provides broader understanding again let's look at ephesians 5 ephesians 5 verse 25 paul writes husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her underline that statement gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish now do you see this the husband is to love the wife as christ loved the church he anchors this in the work of christ the centerpiece of the gospel the cross men husbands the shape of our love for our wives should take the form of the cross. Such love pays the supreme cost and cherishes the beloved without requirement or expectation. Again, underline that. Christ gave himself up for us. 
Six other times Paul uses that phrase. Christ gave himself up. Galatians 1.4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. 1 Timothy 2.6. He gave himself as a ransom. Titus 2.14. He gave himself as a ransom for our sins. Ephesians 5.2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We need to spend much time at the cross. Husbands, men, we need to spend time at that cross considering what Jesus has done to save us from our sin. But you know, isn't it the truth? Sadly, we can be great at giving things, but not giving up things. We're great at giving demands. We're great at giving orders. Giving expectations. Giving requests. Even giving nothing. Distracted by everything else. Except the needs of our homes. Giving attention to ourselves. Our hobbies. Our devices. But not giving up for the sake of our families. The gospel calls the husband to give himself up. To serve and sacrifice everything for his wife. No matter her flaws. No matter her failures. No matter her imperfections. And that goes beyond protecting physically and providing materially. Because I think we have a tendency as men to just stop there. It goes far beyond the material and the physical. The text says in Ephesians 5 that a husband is to cherish his wife like he cherishes and cares for his own body. And to sanctify her. That is theological language. The husband must take the initiative to nourish his wife and his kids spiritually, emotionally, physically. Men, we set the tone in our homes. We establish the priorities in our families. We fix the trajectories of our marriages and our homes. And so I ask you, do you take time to know your wife, her dislikes, her likes, her qualities, her heart, her desires? Do you lead her spiritually? Do you help her to love Christ, to treasure Him? Can she, can the, your children say that we know, we love, and we see Christ better than we did, we would have, we would, than, than we would have had we had not had you as the husband, as the father? Do we center prayer, the word, and the church as significantly important in the life of our families? You see, you know why those questions are important? Because to do these things means we have to give up. I have to give up of myself. And I'm admitting to you that is difficult because we still have those indwelling selfish tendencies. But we have a Savior who has loved wretched men like all of us in this room and has rescued us and redeemed us and has given us the power of His Spirit to love our wives as Christ loved His church. And so, we have to give up of ourselves and many other things for her good 
and Christ's glory. But notice what Paul does. Now, Paul doesn't just say, okay, love your wives. He says, don't be harsh with them. You know why? Because in that culture, in ancient culture, there was de- definitively a harshness that, that, that often played itself out in relationships specifically with men and their wives, men with their children, and that's the same today. In terms of our speech, our actions. And so Paul is clear, don't be harsh. And the the word harsh implies don't love out of bitterness. The indication is that a husband is not to act like a tyrant or behave bitterly toward his wife. Now remember in Genesis 3 verse 16, the Lord said there'll be that tendency because of that inward corruption. Think about it. What causes men to be harsh? Prideful ego. Thinking more of ourselves than we should. Unfulfilled expectation. Did not do what I wanted. Did not get what I wanted. And so then anger flows from that. Neglected needs or this coined phrase, love languages. Feelings of not being respected. A desire to be in control. There's all sorts of reasons that, that, that men can act in harshness. But really, uh, harshness is all, often displayed by our self-righteous attitudes. God, forgive us that we see perceived flaws or failures. And then what we do is, is we act against our wife or our children with sinful expectations for them to be perfect. To live up to some standard that doesn't exist. And then we crush them. Awareness of our own sinfulness should lead us to not be harsh. But here's really the implication. To be tender. To be caring. To be understanding. Listen to what Peter writes in Peter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Listen to that. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that our, your prayers may not be hindered. Men, you are to be, you, I, we are to be understanding and to show honor to your wife. That's strength. Ephesians, Paul says, to cherish her, to treasure her. So let me ask some questions here. Are you harsh? Are you mean? Do you admit your faults? Do you say you're sorry? Do you talk over her? Or do you talk to her? Do you value her as your equal? Do you listen to her because she matters? Do you belittle her? Or do you build her up? Do you criticize her or do you cherish her? Are you present in the home and in the marriage or are you absent even when you're there? See, all those questions should hit home for all of us. And for all of us as men to say, God, help us to repent of those areas where we drastically have failed and fallen short. And help us to relate to the the, the wife that God has given us to share in the grace of life. To love her as the Savior has loved His church. It requires us to be engaged. To be attentive. Remember that scene in The Incredibles? 
when they're sitting at the table and having family dinner. I mean, it's like the most, I don't know there's ever been anything in any film I've related to more than that. Bob is sitting there reading his, his newspaper, right? And Helen is screaming, Bob, 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 like, are, are you paying attention? And Dash is running around the table. He's already cut a whole plate in half. And Violet is disappearing and reappearing. And she finally screams, engage. And I often think that that is exactly what goes on in the hearts and minds of our wives. Because we have that tendency to not be engaged. And so let us be engaged in such a way that we love, that we serve, that we sacrifice, that we give up ourselves. And hear me, men. Don't talk about your wife's lack of submission until you have talked about your responsibility to love and to lead in your home. And I say you, at the same time, looking at myself in the mirror and speaking to my own heart. So here's the truth applied. Men must demonstrate Christ-centered, gospel-saturated love. Look to the cross, your great Savior, and wherever you have failed, know that there is forgiveness and grace and resolve in your heart and ask the Spirit of God to help you and be transformed in these areas. And if you're single, you're a young man, how do you relate to your parents, your siblings, to your friends, to others that God has placed in your life. And so Paul here comes to verse, the end of verse 18, 19, and he has shown us two ways. The gospel transforms our relationships. Wives submit willingly to the husbands. Husbands, love your wife with selflessness. But then, notice the next verse, verse 20. He turns attention to the children. So kids, hopefully you've not tuned me out here. All our kids in the room. The children. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. And so you see the mandate of obedience. He addresses the children in the, in the church as responsible members of the covenant community. In other words, if you're a child, if you're a teenager, if you're a young adult and you're living under the authority of your parents, the Apostle Paul says the gospel has something to say to your attitude and your relationship to the parents that God has given you. Children of every age. And what's beautiful about this is, again, children had no rights in the Roman world. But Paul establishes the reality that children are created in the image of God. And children, kids in this room, hear me say this. You are important not just to your homes, but even in the life of the local church. And you are also accountable to the Lord who has saved you if you're a believer. And if you're not saved, then my prayer is that you will turn to Christ for salvation and follow him. And so Paul tells the children, obey Which in Ephesians, he states, is the first commandment with promise of the Ten Commandments. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3, verse 2, that disobedience of of parents is demonstrative of the qualities of the ungodly in the last days. Rebellion against their authority. 
resignation of their prominence in your life is absolute rebellion against God. And Paul says, obey them in everything. Now that is vastly comprehensive. It certainly does not mean that a child should obey parents if they are expected or required to disobey God. Or being mistreated or harmed or abused, absolutely not. But the idea here is, is in the Lord, in everything, as it pleases the Lord. And so there is to be a rendered obedience to parents as long as children are under their authority. And so that requires, if you think about the context here, there, the homes and families would have had not just younger children, but there would have been even extended family, adult children that still would have lived within the home. And so certainly what would have to be required, what we would expect is that the obedience for a young adult would probably be different than it for a child. I have, as an example, I have a 21-year-old daughter in our home. And so my expectations of obedience is uniquely different than what I would expect from my 15-year-old. And so parents have to exercise biblical wisdom and common sense considering this text. And so I have to be keenly aware that my role as a father is sometimes has to adjust my expectation as she ages and matures and enters into a new relationship and prepares for marriage. But the mandate is clear that there is to be obedience in everything. There is to be a disposition in a child that the gospel produces that seeks to obey the mother and the father. And notice the motivation for obedience. Look at the text. It says, Father, it says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, everything under the Lordship of Christ. Paul grids the Lordship of Jesus over the command. It pleases the Lord. And that should be the driving goal, the fueling desire of every believer, even children. And so children in this room recognize that your parents have been given authority by God. And they have been, that authority, they are to exercise over you. And you're to obey, obey that authority with joy and with the right attitude because it pleases the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved you. And you are promised to be blessed by doing so. If you go to Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 3, you see that. And so all of us know in this room who's a parent that while a child or a teenager may comply outwardly to obey, have you ever had a kid that behaved or obeyed begrudgingly? Or you had to look at him and say, what did you say under your mouth? What did you whisper? Say that again. So we see that outward obedience doesn't mean what Paul's driving at here is inward transformation. And so the truth applied here is simple. Children must honor their parents with gospel joy and gratitude, with a gratefulness for the mother, for the father that God has given you. And if you have just one and not the other, even a, a larger gratitude for the, re, the additional responsibility and care that your mom or your dad has extended to you in the grace of life. So kids in the room, how's your attitude towards your parents? What's your attitude towards authority? Do you have a disposition of rebellion? 
Or has the gospel produced a disposition of obedience in your heart? Love your parents. Honor your parents. Obey your parents. Because it is right in the eyes of God. And so just like in the husband, just like in the relationship with the husband and wife. Now, what is uniquely different is, is that submission is willing and voluntary. When Paul tells children to obey, it's a command. It's an order. It's not left to just willingness. It's right and therefore should be done. But notice what Paul does. Not only does he just address the children. Not only did he address the wife, he addressed the husband. He addresses the ones that have the authority. See how he balances this? He does not permit the one that is given the authority or the headship or the leadership. He does not give them permission to be abusive, tyrannical, or oppressive. Instead, he balances it and he calls them to act and to live in obedience and faithfulness to Christ in love and in grace of the gospel. So now he turns to the parent and he says to the parent, the parent must discipline carefully. So look at the text. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, do you know why he says fathers and not fathers and mothers? He is affirming headship. Fathers, you have the responsibility to set the tone. Does he include, is, is the mother included in that? Absolutely. Does the mother share in the grace of life? Yes. Are the children equally her responsibility in nurturing and care? Yes. But he is putting to men their responsibility before God. And what that ought to cause men to do is to be humbled and to be to their knees to realize the greatness of this responsibility. And so, fathers, do not provoke your children. And so, in other words, what he's saying is that we must guide their spirits without provocation lest they become discouraged. Paul addresses the fathers and, and the mothers, the parents, and what he is saying here is that our discipline, our correction, our instruction must be such that it guides their spirits, their souls. If you look at the Ephesians passage, what you'll see is, is Paul says that we're to train them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We're not just issuing discipline and correction, but we're, we're guiding their souls as we raise them up in the light of the gospel and under the authority of the word of God. You know why? Parents, you know why? Because they belong to God, not to us. They have been entrusted to us. We're not living our dreams through them. We're, 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 not to, we're not to hold on to them with such tightness and closeness that we're not preparing them for the rest of their lives to be lived for the glory of God. And so they belong to God. And Paul's words here indicate that we should not provoke them into further rebellion. We shouldn't crush them. Our treatment of our children will shape their view of God and the gospel. And for that reason, we need to be clear with them on our expectations. As well as we have to be honest when we make mistakes, when we respond wrongly. We need to live in the grace of the gospel with them. We must be intentional so that they see that our authority mirrors God's authority. 
And that their sin and disobedience is evil and it deserves punishment, not because it's inconvenient to us, but because it's a sign of the corruption within. And so do you know what that means? That means that our discipline and our instruction must lead them to their need for redemption. And that requires intentional gospel-shaped parenting that guides the soul and then secondly guards their hearts lest they become discouraged. Listen to me. If your goal is to modify your children's behavior to produce Christian kids and to not shepherd their hearts, you may end up with Pharisees, but you will not end up with them truly seeing that the heart of everything is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you must shepherd, we must shepherd their hearts And central to that parenting is the gospel of grace and forgiveness. That's why, again, we should, just like in our marriage relationships, live openly. We're all broken. We're all messy. We all need a Savior. We all need to be able to come to one another and say, when we've made mistakes, we we need to explain our discipline, explain our correction, but also admit when we're wrong and display to them our own need for Christ. No parent is perfect. And every father and every mother would say at times in our lives that any good we see in our kids, often it's just like, not because of me. It's a work of grace and their heart and life. And so we have to guard their hearts. And so let me encourage you. Do not impose impossible demands on them. Do not expect perfection. Do not crush them with living up to some fabricated standard. Do not make it impossible for them to make you happy. And you know, I think often that harsh parents have created generations of people who have a view of God that he doesn't love them, that he doesn't care for them, that he's always mad, he's always angry, and he's impossible to please. But what's true in the gospel is the opposite of that. Our Father has embraced us in the grace of the gospel. And he loves us. And he desires to shower us with his blessings and for us to come to him and call him our heavenly father and so shower them with grace and show them how much you need the gospel and when they fail or they fall or even go astray be the prodigal's father open your arms and always be ready to dispense grace And receive them with love. The greatest arsenal in your parenting is the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest arsenal. Greatest piece of armory that we have in what God has given us. So we, we, what we see here then is that parents must discipline children with gospel truth and shepherd them with gospel truth grace now do you see how the gospel shapes the family the home do you see how the gospel brings each member of the household under the lordship of jesus who has saved us from sin and rescued us from wrath and do you see as these things happen over time do you know what happens as these things develop in our our homes over time they preach the gospel They preach Christ to those that are watching. 
And so do you embrace God's pattern and order for your, the family? Is the gospel shaping your marriage and your family? How do you need to respond today? Which of these areas strikes you where you need to, to come before the Lord and say, I need you to transform me continually in this area? Maybe you're struggling in one of these areas. I, I, I want to say again that we are not all put together perfectly. Marriage is hard. Life is messy. And none of us have arrived. And we all need God's grace in each of these areas. But here's the truth. Jesus is Lord and He is faithful. He is faithful. And so perhaps you're here today and you say, you know, I've struggled in my attitude towards my husband's leadership. I've struggled loving in the way I should as a husband. I'm not obeying as I need to as a, as a child under the authority of my parents. I'm not, I'm not governing and disciplining my children the way that Christ would have me that shepherds their hearts, guides their spirits. But here's the truth. Ask God to forgive you, to help you, and he will. Men, maybe, we need to, maybe you need to take your wife, your children, come to the altar before the Lord and pray together. For the gospel to continue to shape your family, your home, your marriage. Praying for wisdom. And maybe you're here and you're carrying some of this all alone. Because you don't have the other in your life. And you need to rely heavily on the Lord to help you. As you navigate with your family and your children. Whatever it is, how will you respond today? Let's stand and we'll pray. And have a time to respond. Father, we... Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel that saves us and shapes us. All of us come into this room with some mess, some brokenness, some dysfunction. And our hope is that in Christ, you're putting it all back together. And so whatever it is, the burden we carry, whatever it is need need that we have, help us to respond to your word and help us to do these things as an outpouring of what Christ has done for us. Transform our homes. Transform our marriages. So that Christ will be put on display. And others will see the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.